The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 116 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus, along with my co-host, the chief information security officer of Siena, Andy Benillo. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not my president of past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. So happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the new year for Task Force 7 Radio. It's hard to believe that we're in our 116th episode already. It's, it's amazing. It's even harder to believe and more humbling is, is, is to grasp the large and loyal audience that we have accumulated over the last two years. It's just incredible. And I'm super grateful for everyone who takes the time to listen to our show. Thanks for listening. This is going to be an exciting year for Task Force 7, and I appreciate all of you who stuck with us through our journey. We got a great show uh, last week that summarized some of the biggest cybersecurity topics and issues of 2019. We had the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Strategy Officer of Flashpoint, Jeff Lefkowitz and Chris Camacho, we're with us to recap some of the most talked about cybersecurity topics of the last 12 months, from the spread of ransomware to the continued emphasis and concern on the insider threat, especially, in, in my opinion, due to the increased collaboration between these shady nation-state actors and organized crime and terrorist organizations. That's going to continue to push the insider threat uh, issue to the forefront. And then we also had, you know, the push for cybersecurity fusion center models during the year and, and how they are being implemented across the industry. We talked about that at great length. And then Lefkowitz and Camacho unpacked some, some really, really cool topics. We talked about the difference between government and commercial cyber models, which I think is of interest to people, especially if you're making a transition to understand the difference. And then what also happens in the dark web cyber underground in, in 2019, what happened across the, the year I think people really appreciate this type of information and this type of topic because it helps them do their job. Uh, and it's not something they see all the time. It's not like they go and live in the cyber underground. Well, some of you do out there. <laughs> some people do as, as you know, part of their job and, and, and part of their intelligence gathering operations. But it's, it, it's only a few people really relative to the size of the industry. And so listening to what they had to say about that, 
I think uh, people found very informative. They also found informative uh, some of the other topics like cri- what, what cryptocurrencies the criminals were using as a part of the underground discussion. I thought that was pretty interesting. And then we couldn't have a, an end of year show without talking about how government organizations are dealing with election security. And we'll even probably talk about that again tonight. But it was a great show. Uh, it, it was a great show. I really enjoyed having both Jeff and, and Chris on the show. Um, and if you haven't listened to it, I would definitely go back and take, take a listen. It's, it's episode number 115 of Task Force 7 Radio. It's definitely going to be worth your time, uh, I, I promise you. Uh, if, you're on the, if you're on the subway, if you're in the car, it's a great time to turn on the show. That's, that's the wonderful thing about playback. So if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage and you can find all the TF7 Radio episodes at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is the most impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. And of course, we have our new section as well. You can check out all the latest cybersecurity news and news on Task Force 7 Radio and interact with people who also listen to the show, which is a lot of fun. We're on 12 different playback mediums right now, at least 12, and we've made it super simple for you to find them all. Just hit the subscribe button at top right of the homepage, and you will see your entire selection of playback mediums, and most importantly, you can subscribe right to the show from the TF7 Radio website. So check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. So we've got a great show to kick off 2020 for you this evening. The CEO and co-founder of Veridin, Mr. Chris Key, is going to be with us this evening. Veridin Incorporated is a company pioneering the instrumentation of cybersecurity. And we're going to talk about instrumentation and what that means and what's the advantage of, of using instrumentation in your models. Chris has 20-plus years of strategic and technical experience across cybersecurity, network engineering, and software design that he's going to bring to the show tonight. And previously, Chris was the chief architect of network products at ArcSight, a global leader in cybersecurity software solutions. I think a lot of people know who ArcSight is, where he continued to develop the incident response and network automation product line that was acquired from Inaira Technologies, and that's a company that he founded in 2003. So I'm excited to welcome to the show the CEO and co-founder of Veridin, Mr. Chris Key. Chris, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, we're glad to have you. Happy New Year to you and your family. Um, look, I want to talk about the, 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 I guess, I don't know, I want to say confusion in, in the market, but there's so many companies out there with so many different products and uh, it does get very, very complex to try to navigate this whole cybersecurity environment uh, from a vendor perspective. And companies are investing millions of dollars in security solutions every year, uh, but the attacks and breaches are still on the rise, right? So everyone's looking for that push button solution, I think, unfortunately, still, no matter how much we preach about it and evangelize about it. But your own company's research states that security controls perform at only about 25%, which leaves a lot of room for attackers to get through and a lot of opportunity for them to, to attack uh, these organizations. Why is there such a gap between the security investments and the protection these investments provide? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think um, there's a, a number of reasons for it. I think uh, the biggest kind of challenge in, in, uh, in cybersecurity from a choosing products and choosing vendors is that vendors don't really need to quantify the specific attacker behaviors and the specific threats that their acronym that they're selling actually uh, will, will defend against, uh, whether out of the box or con- able to be configured to do so. So I don't have to lay out and say, for this APT group, here's the exact behaviors, here's the exact TTPs, here's the exact um, types of threats that my system will block. I don't have to quantify things like that. So the, the, the purchaser is left to a lot of assumption. That's the kind of the first, the first piece. I think the next two things that we see in every organization we work with is a series of systems that are misconfigured and underconfigured. And so by misconfigured, I mean I actually have something wrong about how I've set this up. I've got a, you know, an IBS that's not actually seeing the traffic it needs to, or I've got a endpoint product that has the wrong policies deployed um, via human error. And then under configuration, we've seen a lot as well, where going back to, again, that assumption around what this technology is supposed to do, I expect when I plug my fire, next-gen firewall in that it's going to be blocking things, but it turns out that the majority of the rules are for detection only and not blocking. So I've got a lot of capability that I have access to that I've already deployed that is actually under configured. So the kind of the combination of the lack of need to quantify misconfiguration and under configuration are the, the primary drivers for that poor performance. Wow, so you think it's more human error than it is actually the performance of the tool itself? Often, often lack of human effort or, or wow. human error are, are actually driving a lot of, and we've seen organizations we've worked with be able to increase their prevention capabilities by 80 to 90% in just a week or two by simply having a plan to go through and actually make sure they're working. <laughs> Reading the instructions? <laughs> <laughs> right, effectively. But it's more, it's more than that, right? Because it goes back to that, you know, it's, it's getting it in place, but then how do I actually know what it's doing for me? How do I know if the threats are going to go through? So being able to actually go through and proactively test and validate and say, okay, I know now that these behaviors are, are being blocked is a huge, huge shift in mindset. So you talked about some of the assumptions that these people are making when they buy these tools. These professionals implement these sort of sometimes sophisticated technologies. What are some of the common assumptions they have when doing that? I mean, what, what, are, they, what do they assume about the security controls that they're putting in place. Yeah, so that, that's, that's, there's really kind of four core assumptions that we've seen over and over and over again. And really, you know, the Veriden platform is, is trying to address those. And the first one is really kind of exactly what we were just talking about, is I've got to make a lot of assumption around, you know, the tools are performing the way that the vendor told me and the tools are going to actually add value that, uh, that I'm buying. The second one is really then, okay, have I deployed and configured these tools correctly? And because we're reliant on, you know, a project and a checkbox of, yes, the, the tool is deployed, uh, there's not a lot of verification after the fact, and certainly not an ongoing basis to make sure it's actually configured the way we need it. You know, the third one is we talk a lot about lack of, of people in cybersecurity and that challenge, but we also have to make an enormous amount of assumption about the quality of the people that we have and how effective they are at actually responding and how effectively our effective our procedures are going to be in responding to events. Then I think the last kind of major assumption, which is kind of almost like the cancer of cybersecurity that, that we're not discussing enough, is the fact that while security has all of this responsibility, they don't also often have the operational authority that they need. And so they're very much impacted by the changing environment around them. And they have to kind of assume that as that IT and networking infrastructure is changing, 
that all those changes are properly communicated, properly understood, and properly uh, implemented. And that kind of environmental drift where the change windows over the weekend and the new piece of software and that movement moved to the cloud and all these things that are changing in the environment are kind of continuously undercutting that security posture. And so those are kind of like the four buckets of assumption that we see most often impacting people. Okay, Chris, is there, is there another one where people just don't know who's attacking them, like what threats they actually need to care about? That is a really good point because a lot of times people will get overly caught up in simply vulnerability reports or CVEs or the latest blog posts rather than really understanding their industry and what groups are interested in targeting their industry, whether it be for nation state purposes, whether it be for um, simply <laughs> trying to steal, uh, whatever the, the actual uh, motivation varies. But now that's a really good point that, you know, when you kind of are just playing uh, CVE soup, so to speak, and trying to just, you know, sit there and hit every hit everything, we know that's a losing game. Being able to focus on saying, we know that here, here's the groups that are coming after me based upon the industry that I'm in or the position that I'm in, and here's what their behaviors look like and validating against that, that is, a, is a really good way to cut through that clutter. You know, how do you think these assumptions differ from reality? You know, and when does reality hit? <laughs> does it actually hit before something bad happens, they have a bad day? Or do they usually realize, hey, look, my assumption really isn't reality sometime before that, hopefully? You know, I think it's interesting. I mean, you know, in the beginning you said we've, you know, continued to spend more and more money yet breaches continue to be on the rise, right? And I think that that's kind of the, the core piece of evidence that says, look, we can't just throw effort and dollars at this and more and more products at this and solve the problem. There's got to be some other underlying problems that we're missing. Uh, and, and these dollars must not be being as effective as we think that they are. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, without a plan in place to kind of really be validating on a daily basis, your environment, you are forced to kind of just hope that the things that you're doing that your team is doing is actually working well. And I think that, you know, that's where we see, you know, while the dwell time has come down for, for attackers, it's certainly, you know, certainly still a very long period of time. And uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of that, that reality does hit you in the face. But I think more and more people are realizing that they don't know, right, rather than just kind of thinking that they're good and trying to proactively understand ahead of time. Yeah, hopefully. I feel like it's a slow go, but we're making some progress. I do feel like there's progress being made. It's not all doom and gloom out there, but still, this is such a long road to go. But let's just let's quantify the discussion in terms of business risk, and because I really like to take these cybersecurity issues and sort of quantify them into a risk discussion, because I think more people understand the risk discussion when we speak from a common lexicon of risk than than security. And so, what's the impact of the assumptions? Uh, about cybersecurity that these people are making when they implement these tools on business risk and what can be done about it? Yeah, I think, you know, you know the biggest challenge in assessing business risk today is probably that whatever formulas that we're using, we're often using very qualitative data and we're, we're not necessarily, you know, we might check the box and say, well, we have a DLP, we have an endpoint protection system, we have you know, a process, we have a procedure, we have an MSSP, but given that gap in simply owning a product team or service versus how effective it is, creates a situation where ultimately the risk scores that, you know, folks are trying to 
based decisions on are not driven by quantitative data and they're not driven by actual measurable um, things. And I think that creates a situation where we're trying to solve a problem that desperately needs hard data to solve with a lot of squishy things. And it, it's you know, ultimately unreliable to a very large degree right now in cybersecurity. So when we talk about cyber risk, and I think a lot of times when we do talk about it, it's a C-level, it's a C-suite discussion, um, unfortunately, or fortunately for some, well, it goes both ways, I guess, but is it, is it really for a C -le this, only the C-levels to address, or when does the IT security team address it, and how does that governance structure look like? I've been in some really good governance structures, or I've seen the conversation sort of swell up to get to the, uh, a, a top-tier committee who sits down and discusses their specific appetite for risk. And that appetite changes. It goes up and down. And then they make the risk decision depending on the environment and, and the information and data points that they have at their disposal. But when should this discussion really start? How should it be structured? And how does that flow of information go up and down, do you think? Yeah, that's a, that's a you know, a massive issue. And, and I think uh, there's a lot of different people, you know, coming up with different strategies to try to address this. I think fundamentally, though, a challenge is when you look at business executives that are not technology executives or not cyber executives, the way that they try to measure the business and run the, the non-cyber aspects of the business is very much with, with quantifiable data, right? And they want to, to understand, you know, often on a spreadsheet or with some sort of measurable term, data points that they can then use and rely on to make decisions. I think as, you know, the CISO or whatever um, persona you want to give it, as the cybersecurity executive has interacted more and more with the business and with the executives, you know, historically, a lot of that data has been, you know, very qualitative. You know, a lot of it is, or even if it was quantitative, it didn't really actually measure anything useful. So we're looking at, you know, percentage of patches or, you know, blocks on the firewall or, you know, a red, yellow, green kind of uh, situation. I think, you know, the key to really making this successful over time is to make sure that when we're communicating to the business, we're providing, you know, quantifiable information that's easy to understand, that's based upon proactive validation so that we can really elevate cybersecurity to something that, that the non-cyber executives feel like is a measurable um, service and a measurable um, input to risk versus kind of this magic black box that we throw money at and we're not really sure what it gives us. And so I think that, you know, the more and more that we can speak in hard terms of here's what we've tested, here's why these tests are important to us and here's what we're going to do next uh, and here's how we're trending over time versus, you know, we deployed this new acronym or this new buzzword of the day. <laughs> I think the more and more yeah. it's, it's based upon that quantifiable data, the better it'll be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it not only goes with, with, I guess, the cyber risk committees, the highest risk committees in these organizations, whether it be tech or operations or sometimes both, um, but it's also working with the, the business uh, ELCs, right? And these leadership committees um, in, in, in the lines of business sometimes are very difficult to persuade when it comes to security issues, unless you really work with them and, and, and frame things in that common lexicon of risk. So, to get business and security teams to work closer together, the, the, the foster sort of this closer alignment, uh, the, everybody's ships must be sailing in the same direction type of thing. What tools are available to help them in this process? What can they do? 
You know, I think a lot of it goes back to the question earlier around understanding who and, you know, who's attacking you and how they're attacking you and why that's important. And I think that when we're communicating with, um, you know, non-security executives, being able to frame things around the actual threat actors that are targeting our, our organization, why they're targeting our organization, why we need to care around them and having that persona there around that threat is important for people being able to kind of grasp the importance of it. And then I think from there, you know, leveraging tools like the Veteran Platform that say, okay, I'm going to take these behaviors now. But now that we all understand that this APT group or this threat actor group is important to us as an organization from a risk point of view, here's the behaviors that this organization employs. And we're validating on a continuous basis our infrastructure to make sure if we're preventing, detecting, or responding to these, here's where we are today. Here's the percentage or the the ones that are the, the, the most critical, here's what we're not addressing. And then having a plan to say, okay, for these threats, for these TTPs, for these threat actor behaviors that we're not addressing, is it because we have the wrong technology? Is it because we have the wrong people? Is it because we have the wrong deployment? And kind of then linking everything from that persona through a tool like Veridin or others that actually validate against those behaviors to then what's the remediation plan, I think is a is a good approach and kind of leverages both you know communication as well as the as well as proactive validation. All right, folks, we've got to transition to a commercial break here, but stick right with us. Lots more to come with Chris Key from Veridin on this episode of Task Force 7 Radio. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the CEO and co-founder of Veridin, Mr. Chris Key. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x 
x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Signet, S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to task force seven radio with george Redis. if you'd like to find out more about our program please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com again that's taskforce7 with the number seven radio.com now back to this week's show here again is your host george Redis. welcome back to task force seven radio the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the CEO and co-founder of Veridin, Mr. Chris Key. So, Chris, you know, before the break, we were talking a little bit about measurement and being able to measure, uh, you know, cybersecurity risk and and security in in terms of metrics. Is it possible for companies to measure in financial terms now what their cyber risk exposure can amount to? In other words, can companies quantify the cost of their cyber risk in real dollars? Yeah, so there's there's obviously a desire to do this, right? I mean, that that's you know going back to conversations around how do we how do we have the executives engaged? How do we communicate to the non-technical executives? Obviously, anytime we can do that in dollar terms, that's going to have a much bigger impact on the technical terms. Um, you know, there's a lot of different approaches folks have taken to this. You know, there's stuff um, based upon more you know we'll call it the balance sheet impact, right? Of you know if X, Y, and Z happens, you're going to lose you know, $50 million or whatever it is. I think, you know, one interesting uh, approach to this that's out there is there's a company called Cyber Hedge that actually is kind of takes a, both a, a financial plus a, a cyber posture uh, analysis to say, what is the actual impact going to be to the share price if we were to need to publicly disclose a breach? And that's a, that's a very interesting 
kind of approach uh, versus a balance sheet hit because I believe the, you know, obviously from moving from due diligence to due care and fiduciary responsibility, you know, making sure that you're protecting shareholder value is obviously a, a critical uh, critical aspect for any any business executive. So that's, I think, one of the most interesting ones out there that I'm seeing right now is, being, is really saying, you know, these things are important because our shareholders are going to lose these dollars if, uh, if we don't address them. So it's interesting because I got into a lot of uh, discussions and conversations with some very, very smart people about how you're able to quantify uh, cybersecurity risk in financial terms. And some of the people were just so adamant that you could not do it. They did not want to do it. They didn't want to hear anything about it. They didn't even want to try it or even mention it. And I think they saw it as a, in, in some respects as a, as a, uh, you know, a disadvantage when having discussions with senior leaderships. And then you had the other, the, the whole, like the other 50% of the people were like completely adamant in the other direction. <laughs> yes, you can measure these things. And I found that the people that were mostly understanding that you can, and I'm one of those people, by the way, that you can, that think that you can definitely do this and you can do it accurately uh, to a certain degree and actually make it very valuable in your decision-making process. Um, is they're, they're more business-oriented and business-minded than some of the other folks that were adamant against it who were very, very, you know, very, very technical. And so you have the old adage that more is not always better when it applies to security. And I think a lot of that comes from uh, sort of the technologist in the industry. Then companies expect that if they just put more controls in place, then they have better protection. But that's not always the case, right? I mean, it's not always the case to have these more controls. How do IT teams determine what security controls they need to invest in to strengthen their security posture, knowing that there's this sort of push and pull going on in these uh, executive committees? Yeah, well, I mean, at this point, you know, for so many years, it's kind of been new buzzword, new acronym, add it to my checklist, throw it into the environment. Uh, for so long that, I mean, at this point, you know, when you look at the surveys of the numbers of tools and controls people have deployed, it's kind of ridiculous. And I think that there's starting to be a shift to understand, you know, do we really need all these things? I mean, I think one of the things that we hear more and more from customers now is rather than help me figure out what to buy next, it's helping me what I can get rid of. Mm. And how do I reduce the complexity? And, it's, you know, sometimes it's a dollars conversation. Sometimes it's we need to cut back the, the spend, but oftentimes it's simply a this is too complicated to manage. We know that we're actually now creating more issues in our environment based on the complexity and lack of people's ability to really understand it. How do we then take the threats, take the behaviors, go validate these things in an objective way and look at the data to say, interesting, we were buying product X, Y, and Z to combat you know, known malware downloads, but it turns out in our environment, it's not actually doing that well. Um, and then using that kind of quantifiable data to remove products and remove controls, and then certainly then as we buy new ones, validate against that. But I think, I think that that quantifiable understanding of what is this control actually doing for me is, is step one. And what we've found is that a lot of times, you know, every organization kind of has that controls mapping, right? We've bought these things for these reasons, and very rarely when we actually test them are those in line. A lot of times the controls are not actually doing what we expected or assumed that they would be. So how do IT teams know if the controls that they have in place are actually providing the right protection or the expected protection that they purchased them for or their unnecessary overlaps or gaps in this coverage, right? I thought you mentioned before, people are actually paying you now to come in and eliminate the duplicity in their environment and, 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 and try to get things in a much simpler state where they can understand it, consume the information, then act upon it. I mean, what's the, what's the, the, uh, the answer? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, 
moving from kind of a reactive approach to having a, a platform in place in your environment that's continuously testing these, these controls against the threats that are targeting you provide you that quantifiable data to be able to go back and say, you know, interesting, our, you know, malware analysis system actually was only blocking, you know, 25% of what we expected, but this new next-gen firewall that we just put in place is actually closing the gap there and there's some good overlap. And, you know, naturally by testing our environment on a continuous basis against these threats and these threat actors, it's going to provide that data to then associate. And what's critical is we can't just run tests in the environment. We have to be able to associate the results of those tests back to the control. I need to know which control is deployed that actually prevented something or detected something or is enabling me to respond to something. And so by having that validation in place and by having a system that helps me do that on a daily basis, that's going to automatically give your team the data that they need to, to make those decisions. Yeah, it has to be consumable and actionable and timely. And I think uh, you, you, you hit all the... The nails right on the head there. I, I love very. I love what you guys do over there. I love what you guys do. I'm a big believer in this, and um, I've been trying to sort of push uh, this process and this way of thinking, I should say, uh, for a long time. But it's been difficult. It's been difficult. A lot of a lot of people really are resistant and are, are sort of stuck in, in in their own ways. I find uh, oddly enough that I get help from the lines of business when I'm trying to do this because they understand it a little bit better in terms of, you know, quantifying the information in financial terms. Let's shift gears here for a second. Let's talk about uh, the, the cybersecurity talent shortage. And I was reading, you know, uh, the other day um, that there's a, a group out there and I forget the organization and I should have it with me, but there's like 2.8 million jobs, cybersecurity jobs in the world right now. But there's like 4 million jobs that are not to be filled out for the next 12 months. And, and you know, I mean, it's ridiculous. Like there's more jobs that are not filled and people are actually working in the seats, I guess is the point. I mean, yeah. what do you think should be done to address the cybersecurity talent shortage today that companies face? Yeah, it's an interesting problem. I think obviously there's aspects of it, you know, that we need to solve from a technology point of view and focusing on autonomous socks and things of that nature. But I think that, you know, an over-focus on simply butts and seats is going to put us in, if, in a worse position than we are today because we're going to just assume because we have somebody sitting there that they're actually know what they're doing. And, and fundamentally, when you look at how cybersecurity training works today, there's a massive disconnect in experience. Um, and we put kind of, you know, folks through labs and we put them in virtual environments and we put them in cyber ranges and then we throw them into our production sock and say, Hey, you know, go defend, <laughs> go defend the enterprise. And it's kind of like pulling somebody through boot camp and saying, Hey, you can, you know, use your service revolver. So now please fly my Blackhawk helicopter. Right? I mean, it's a totally different, <laughs> totally different environment, totally different uh, setup, totally different cockpit. And at the end of the day, these folks don't have the experience of having gone through the actual incidents to understand what they're going to look like and how they should respond. And so the same way that we're talking about needing to validate our controls with quantifiable information, we should be continuously training in, in, in an experience-driven way in the actual environment by running these, these attacks live attacks, live production environment, so that the, um, the, the folks can actually then understand, learn, and train based on that real experience in that real environment, and then be tested out continuously as they move forward. So, I mean, I think ensuring the quality of the person sitting there is more important even than making sure that you have a bunch of them sitting there. Um, and I think that that's, that's critical, or we're going to end up kind of with a false sense of security of we filled all of our spots, but nobody here has actually responded or detected anything. 
So relative to your experience and expertise, I want to cover a few different topics here and take advantage of you being on the show. That includes things like the people's partners ecosystem and migrating to the cloud, um, corporate governance and data privacy, things like that. So first, I, I just want to ask you about the company's partner ecosystems, their supply chains. How does a company ensure that its entire digital ecosystem, including the third-party suppliers and fourth-party suppliers, adheres to its security requirements? Yeah, that, that's this is, a, you know, as we've seen, just a massive challenge. And I think, you know, just similar to some of the um, approaches that we've taken to try to define risk and how they're not as effective as they should be, I think, you know, this is another situation where we've kind of fallen back to questionnaires and, you know, answer these questions and, and really almost gotten to a place where we're just trying to protect ourselves legally and from a contractual point of view versus actually really being more operationally secure. Yeah, just treading and, water, right? No one's trying to swim. <laughs> exactly. I, yeah, just trying to stay alive. Yeah, I, I get that feeling as well. Yeah, and, and I don't think it's because people don't want to address the problem. It's just a complicated problem now. You have multiple companies. You have um, different environments. You know, obviously vendors don't want their customers coming into their environment and vice versa. Um, so I think it's definitely a challenge. I, I think one of the ways that we've seen seen our customers try to address this is to simply uh, define criteria beyond questionnaires around or questionnaires around how are you, how can you prove to me that these things are in place versus simply answering and, and checking a box that you have it. You know, how, what are you doing to prove to me that uh, your DLP is going to stop X, Y, and Z exfiltration? What are you doing to prove to me that you will not be hit by the, ne the next ransomware that's coming into the environment? And actually moving to those proof points, which can be provided by, by a platform like Veritin or other means of saying, give me evidence of your posture versus simply tell me what your posture is, is, is really the, the next best approach to or really the next step in the approach to how we measure this. It's definitely a complicated challenge, though, for sure. Yeah, because it's just difficult, difficult to scale. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's very difficult to scale. How about the cloud with companies migrating to the cloud and the widespread trend toward digital transformation, which we talk about a lot on the show, what new security risks are introduced in this area? Yeah, unfortunately, I think, you know, for a lot of security practitioners, the, the you know, digital transformation and, you know, move to the cloud have kind of turned into phrases that equal, we'll figure out security later. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> that's, you know, been a challenge. I think as, you know, you look at a cloud environment, you know, we were talking about people, a minute ago, and I think that the, the environment and just how you have to approach a cloud is completely different than a data center and certainly a kind of a hierarchical network that you you have today. And so a lot of folks, you know, we're seeing just don't even understand how their their risk has shifted by being in the cloud versus their own their own network. Number one, number two, I think the the native cloud tools that are available from a security point today as we've worked with customers to validate them and customers have used our, our system to validate them are really not up to par with the, the traditional kind of on-prem and, and um, um, systems that we've had deployed in the past as of yet. And so I think that it's a, it's important to, to make sure as much as everyone wants to rush to turn the data center off and rush to kind of check the digital transformation box and all these various things, we need again evidence, you know, let's provide evidence to the business either that we're, as secure, more secure or less secure and make sure that we're kind of having that business conversation of here's the things that we're testing. 
Here's what we're able to block, detect, and respond to in our traditional architecture. Here's what we're able to do in the cloud. And it's very likely those will not be at parity. So what's our plan then to either work with those cloud vendors to improve their native security or, or put something in place, but certainly measuring it. You know, there's a lot of folks that are frustrated on the security side about these things, but they're not providing measurable evidence to the business to actually explain why they're frustrated. And I think being able to, to kind of define that is, is critical in that communication. Yeah, so in terms of these, when speaking in terms of, of measurement and providing evidence, I love this I love this, this concept, by the way, because, you know, it's almost sometimes in, in some scenarios you're actually telling people, hey, be responsible, show us the evidence yourself instead of us having to, you know, do it ourselves. And in, in this situation, uh, it's a little bit different because you, you're working with someone sort of in partnership, it's the cloud provider, but, with, but how should companies address the risk that you just described posed by moving data and operations to the cloud? Like what, the, what should they do exactly to provide this evidence? Well, there's different, there's different kind of tiers when you think about it um, that, you know, security can be implemented. And the first thing we need to do is sit down and say, okay, based upon who's targeting us and who's coming after us and the types of data we're trying to protect, what are the behaviors that we need to make sure that we're actually um, able to defend against? And that could be, you know, specific tools, specific um, techniques, specific pieces of malware, et cetera, that we need to make sure that we're actually able to defend against. One is architecture. I've seen a lot of organizations move a data center architecture uh, directly into EC2 instances. And when you look at that, it's not necessarily the right architecture for the cloud to actually create the best prevention strategy or detection strategy. So how are we addressing then these threats and, and how we're architecting our applications and are we making sure that we're making the adjustments in architecture to best leverage what's good about the cloud versus simply taking what we had in our server rack and sticking it to somebody else's. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing then is, you know, now that we're leveraging these behaviors and validating against them, if we've got our architecture right, what are we doing then with the native controls and how does that close the gap? And then the third thing is then third-party controls. How do we overlay those as well? And then what is our remaining kind of risk? And so I think looking at all three of those, whereas I see a lot of folks just trying to take the approach of just one, you know, I've seen really large organizations that think that their security groups and VPCs are so well configured they don't need any controls. I've seen other folks that basically just try to to take the exact native controls that they were using in their data center and implement them, but I think it's all three. It's what aspects of my architecture and security policy are addressing the threats that are coming after me, number one. What aspects of the, the vendor's cloud native security tools are then addressing the additional gap? And then what can I do from a third party to address the additional gap? And again, taking that approach of looking at all three of those buckets differently and understanding exactly what behaviors each one is addressing for you is, is kind of the first step in the right direction. Let's talk about corporate governance and data privacy. I think security plays a key role in compliance with data privacy regulations, of course. But if security controls aren't working as they should, what are, what are the stakes for the corporation? Like, what, what, what is really, really at risk? And, and, and how do you define that and communicate it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. If we look at the breaches that are taking place, you know, we don't see a lot of companies going out of business, right? And everyone gets, you know, up in arms about protecting their privacy. But at the end of the day, um, you know, a company is effectively held to, you know, making sure that they buy somebody some sort of credit protection for a year or two. And, you know, they're going to take, yes, yeah, some damage and some brand hit and things like that. 
but you know, Target's doing better than ever, right? And, and some of those companies are actually providing the protection from the breach that, that occurred <laughs> in their company, making yeah. money off of it. And then you see their stock temporarily goes down and everyone just sees that as an opportunity to buy. Exactly. And buy and then the stock is actually worth more than it was before the breach. That, that is definitely the case in a lot of cases. Yeah. Right. I, mean, I, I think, <laughs> you know, so, I, I think that that's, that's not going to motivate, you know, and by the way, I'm not trying to say that organizations or companies are not serious. I think that, that a lot of them are serious, yep. but at the end of the day, if the impact is temporary, then there's not going to be the, the level of due care there that's needed. If it's, if your business is really truly at risk. And I think that it's going to have to be driven I hate saying this, but I think it's probably going to have to be driven by regulation and it's going to probably have to be driven by, you know, lawsuits and other things that actually take and have an impact on that business enough to where organizations and boards get, you know, proactively scared to then go out and say, how do we make sure that we really are, are, uh, that doesn't happen to us. And I think while more and more of that is happening, you know, if the pain is always temporary and it's actually, you know, easily, um, managed out via, you know, insurance policies or managed out via, you know, these types of things, I don't know that we're going to see as much change as we, we think that there should be. So how do you think companies can go about properly assessing their entire security posture? And I mean, when I mean entire security posture, I mean, not only the technology and controls that are in place, but also the people and the processes that, that are in place, you know, that they're in compliance as well with every type of government industry regulation and God knows there's hundreds of them. So how do we, how do we go about that? <laughs> yes. Yeah, specifically on the people in process, I think that, you know, we've, we've done these kind of um, tabletop wargaming exercises with, with executives and PR firms and things like that, but we, we haven't done enough of that with our defenders. Um, I think, you know, obviously we have red teams and, and pen tests and various kind of offensive activities that are, have different scope and different duration but oftentimes those end in a report versus really an education on the defenders and the defenses. And I think there's a lot of money spent on offensive exercise. And then from a business point of view, they can't actually point and say, you know, here's how our defenders and defenses are measurably better as a result of this offensive exercise. And we've kind of focused more on just the, the sex appeal of the, uh, the success of the offense versus actually the defense improving. I think that it's, it's important, you know, when we talked about training earlier, but also just for, you know, general um, improvement to make sure that we're continuously having our people and our processes validated and putting them through scenarios where they see exactly what that attack looks like in their environment, educating them on the behavior that the attacker has and then running through and saying, all right, let's go through, whether it's on a sock shift change, whether it's once a week, once a month, whatever, and actually run some scenarios where we see who's actually picking it up, who's actually seeing the events, are our processes working correctly and as more and more people have moved to implement SOAR, validate that those SOAR processes are actually going to kick off the way you expect that they're going to do and the people are going to know what to do as they're as they're kicking off. So I think we've got to move beyond just, you know, hey, do we know what to say when a breach happens and who are you going to call to let's actually run through these scenarios continuously to make sure that our that our people and our processes are really working the way that we expect them to. You know, it's funny how, you know, politics sort of creeps into cybersecurity because if I use the word offensive exercise in a, in a, in a, in a, in a board meeting or in a, in an executive level committee meeting, people go into like DTs, right? I mean, like, <laughs> oh my God, oh my God, we can't, we can't be doing anything offensive. You know, it's a, no, yes, that's not what we really mean. Um, um, you know, do, do you, do you find that just, just the, the, the use of the, the words and the verbiage that you use uh, resonates different with different people? 
when it comes to these type of exercises? De- definitely. Um, it's very personality and experience driven, I would say, and kind yeah, of like yeah. the, where people are coming from. In some cases, the word offensive is, is the wrong one. In other cases, you know, validating, right? Pro- right, it's validation, right? <laughs> right? We, we know what it means, but I guess yeah. you know, some people kind of they flip out. Yeah, they, definitely. The more, you know, the more uh, legal background I think the person has, the more that they're probably going to twitch when that turns <laughs> Maybe, maybe so, maybe so. <laughs> to close the loop on data privacy, uh, last question before the break, what, what, what changes or improvements should companies focus on in the coming year with all this anticipated tightening of data privacy regulations and uh, the new uh, California Privacy Act and everything else? Yeah, I think... <clears throat> You know, moving from implementing new products and new policies and new procedures as a checkbox of, okay, we got this done to then saying, why did we do these things? What are we trying to actually stop from happening? And are we testing that scenario against what we've just done to make sure it's actually effective, right? So I think that the biggest thing is moving from just simply going and continuously implementing another product, another policy, another procedure uh, as part of the plan, quote unquote, for 2020 it's more of why are we doing this and do we have something that's actually going to be giving us evidence that the implementation of this thing gave us the resulting and desired business outcome. And by kind of then taking that proactive validation with each step and making sure every project, every program that we're implementing has an element of validation in it so that we have that daily signal coming back to us proving that what we did is working and accomplishing the outcomes we expect them to, is really, I think, the shift in mindset to, to make sure that what we're doing is, is giving the business as much value as, it, as we could be. Okay, it's time for another quick break, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with our special guest, the CEO and co-founder of Veridin, Mr. Chris Key. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x analytics.com that's x-analytics.com x analytics setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management email is having an identity crisis it's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government that's why over 80 percent of email attacks are based on fake identities The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed 
and request a complete free phishing analysis at bountymail.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Signet, S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Reedus. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Reedus. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the CEO and co-founder of Veridin, Mr. Chris Key. So, Chris, given everything that we talked about in the last two segments of the show, are there certain industry sectors that are getting this right? I mean, there's certain people that actually get it, and, and you can you quantify them into certain groups, or is that really not happening? It's really just the problems really across the board. Uh, any of that still, still going on? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of this comes down to the leadership of an organization. So, there's places that we could point to in, in, in really every vertical where there's leaders and uh, there's, um, you know, executive teams that are asking the right questions and demanding the right evidence. I think, you know, if we look at an industry group as a whole, certainly the financial services industry um, has funded this problem in general well and, and approached that, um, you know, probably a little bit more aggressively than some of the others. That's certainly where we see a lot of our, a lot of our customer base. Of course, we're growing in in every sector, but I would say, you know, uh, it comes down to leadership, but as in sector as a whole, financial services is probably ahead of the game. Uh, you think that's just because they're, they're just more mature in general? I mean, you know, I mean, that's even like, even when we look at, you know, some of the organizations that they belong to, it just seems like the maturity level of cybersecurity and finance far exceeds some of the other sectors. And then it really falls off a cliff after the first, you know, three or four. Yeah, I think it's maturity. I think it's, um, you know, a lot of it, they're much more used to being highly regulated and having to respond to, you know, regulations than, than others. And therefore, their budgets are more in line with doing that. Um, so they understand the, you know, the risk to their business and the, and the damage there from a cyber point of view much more than some of the other organizations. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the public sector. Are government agencies facing the same issues as corporations? 
when it comes to cyber risk and financial impact, or they, do they have a sort of a different type of scenario? I think that they're facing the same, the same issues, but maybe even amplified uh, due to, you know, the often, um, I don't want to say breakdown, but distribution of, of operational control and authority, right? I mean, you know, whereas in the enterprise, you can, you can make statements centrally and then go kind of enforce. And of course, the bigger the company, the harder that is. But when you look at government, there's such a distribution of, of authority and responsibility uh, throughout even a single agency or a single organization that it just even more so complicates the communication, complicates um, understanding, dealing with, you know, data calls and what does this data really mean. So I think it's an even bigger problem, honestly, for, for the government to solve. So I like to talk about election security on this, on this show. I think it's, it's very important to me um, that we get this right. And it's of particular importance in the coming year in the 2020 election, considering, you know, all the, uh, well, it's going to be a very tumultuous election, as you know. I mean, it's, it's really important for us, for people and, that are voting, whether you're Democrat or Republican or independent or otherwise, that you have confidence in the security of the election system itself and that you could be satisfied with the outcome no matter what, not maybe satisfied, but you can accept the outcome no matter what the, that outcome is. What are the biggest threats to the safety insecurity of our democratic voting process? So I think I, you know, even though I'm a security technology guy, I take a little bit of a different view on this than some in the case sense of absolutely these systems, you know, are at risk. But I think that what we've seen is if we can launch a disinformation campaign and if we can actually, you know, whether it be via social media or other channels, influence your decision before you get to the voting booth, then that's a much more effective means of actually manipulating this than necessarily having to change the results. And so I think that, you know, the bigger threat to, you know, from my point of view is, is misinformation is, is bad information is kind of influence um, before you actually even get there. And if, if, if our enemies are able to, to get their desired outcomes by that versus actually straight on, you know, an attack on the election system, which would like to be looked at as an act of war, it's a much lower risk for them and probably guarantees a better outcome. Um, that being said, I do think that those systems obviously need to be, you know, top, top notch, well-funded, you know, our safest systems in our, in our country. But I don't know that we've, you know, figured out how to really solve the, the, the manipulation aspects yet, which are, I think probably a bigger threat right now. So we definitely, I, I definitely understand the manipulation aspects of social media and the misinformation campaigns and, and things like that. But what do you think? Is there anything that we can do to make sure our electronic voting system is more properly safeguarded from foreign or malicious attacks? Well, I mean, right now you've got kind of a distributed system with different aspects of authority going back to the question on the government, right? We've got state uh, responsibility. We have some level of federal responsibility. Um, I know there's been some coordination around how do we do this? But, you know, simply implementing some standards that say, how are we proving what evidence have you done from a validation point of view to demonstrate to me that this system is not easily hacked and uh, easily, easily tampered with putting out some sort of, you know, centralized um, gold standard of what that has to look like, I think is really a step one right now. It seems to be kind of be across the board. Um, you have a lot of different people kind of deciding what good is, and where the funding is going to come from if we, if we don't have a, you know, a gold standard that we can actually say we know this has met X level of, of accreditation or certification based upon these data points, I think is really the step one to getting, getting this better. 
So we talk about proper configuration and how that's a big issue with, with implementation of these technologies. We're talking about rationalizing investments by quantifying things in terms of in financial terms, quantifying the risk, uh, cybersecurity risk in financial terms and optimizing performance. Um, we've talked a little bit about reporting. It's obvious that instrumentation as a way to measure and monitor security effectiveness is critically important in this entire process. Beyond the ability to measure and improve security effectiveness, what are the key benefits of security instrumentation? Yeah, I think, first of all, there's a, there's a dollar conversation to be had, right, of are we actually getting the most value for the dollars that we've spent? So, you know, we've spent X millions of dollars on this project. If we can increase the effectiveness, the prevention effectiveness, the detection effectiveness of those millions of dollars that are already spent by X percentage, that gives us a very, you know, good business case to make. Same way with rationalization, right? If we can actually then take things out and actually quantify and say, we're able to remove X, Y, and Z controls based upon the data that we're seeing, that again lets us speak in dollar terms to the business. And I think all of those things then really help with that communication and help with addressing how are we, as a security organization, interacting with our executives and having that quantifiable conversation. So to wrap up, what changes or improvements do you think are going to happen in cybersecurity over the next year? What are you looking forward to in 2020? What's your prediction? Any? <laughs> Put you out there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, what, what I'd say, what I, what I hope will happen, and I, I'm starting to, <laughs> starting to see, is, you know, I think folks are finally starting to get less excited about the next buzzword that's going to solve all of our problems and be the last thing that all of us ever have to buy, um, and more starting to step back and say, wait a minute, you know, where's the data that we need to actually make decisions? And so, what I'm hoping to see is that, you know, more and more, we're, we're focused on, you know, quantifying our effectiveness and we're focused on making sure when we are going out and spending new dollars that we're showing and proving the gap that we need them for and then demonstrating that they're solving that gap. And so just continuing to move to, to something quantifiable and have that business conversation is where at least I see our customers going and hopefully the, you know, the broader, the broader organization as well. You know, hopefully we'll see AI and machine learning and whatever other buzzword a little less this year and more about how are we, how are we validating that what we've got is working. <laughs> Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, it's time to go. But before I do, I want to remind our listeners to visit the cybersecurity hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the cybersecurity hub at CS hub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 